Hello and welcome to another episode of the Insulin360 podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into metabolic health. I'm your host, Joe, and today I've got another great interview lined up for you. We're going to be getting into the nuts and bolts of autophagy, so talking about this crucial cellular renewal process with regards to longevity and chronic disease risk and uh, metabolic health. And to do that, I'm going to be talking to Nick Verhoeven uh, from physionic.org. Um, he's a cell and molecular biology researcher and he's currently working towards his doctorate in molecular medicine. So he works day in day out at an autophagy lab where they're running experiments to better understand this process. He's also got a master's in exercise physiology and he's a certified personal trainer. So along with the scientific knowledge and the understanding of the various different mechanisms that we get into, he also gives lots of actionable tips on how we can best make use of this process in our day-to-day lives. Uh, At the end, we also get into uh, various different um, fats, dietary fats and their effect on insulin signaling, his thoughts around saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats, and uh, putting that into context of of daily life, of of how this may affect us with regards to uh, our insulin sensitivity and insulin signaling in general. So if you want to know more about Nick, then head on over to his website, physionic.org. I highly recommend you follow him on YouTube. He's putting out lots of great content where he uh, does reviews of the scientific literature and then um, puts them together in an easy to understand format, um, uh, being careful not to perhaps overstate what is said in the science. But again, asking the question about how we can make use of all of this in our day to day lives. And as ever, if you want to know more about Insulin360, head on over to our website. You can sign up to the newsletter or subscribe here on YouTube. And with that said, let's get on with the episode. Okay. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Um, I believe it's a a fair bit earlier with you uh, compared to where I am. Um, How are you today? I'm doing uh, absolutely fantastic. It is a little earlier, but uh, it's quite all right. I'm excited to be here. Great. Good. Okay. So yes, as I understand it, in a a short while, you'll be off to the lab to start uh, a day's work. So um, maybe we could start there. Um, I'll ask you, um, what are you doing in your with your lab work? um, And how is it related to autophagy? Yeah, how is it related to autophagy? It is quite literally autophagy. Um, (laughs) We, uh, so I'm finishing up my PhD at the moment. Um, I'm in my final year, so I'm a senior student. So currently I'm working on a particular project where I take my background in metabolism, which is what I learned in my master's degree when I was doing uh, lab work for my master's, um, and taking that metabolism background and applying it to, uh, autophagy. So that's my primary project that I've been working on over the last few years, which will be my dissertation and whatnot. Um, but before that, actually, we I was also on a paper where we looked at the autophagy of mitochondria specifically, so which is known as mitophagy. And that's really where our lab is most focused. Uh, I've just sort of co-opted the whole autophagy mitochondria uh, area of our lab uh, to be more metabolism focused because I just had a background in that area. Um, 
but typically what our lab used to work on and well exclusively worked on was just figuring out the mechanisms of how autophagy can be targeted to mitochondria and then to gobble up or destroy those mitochondria. Sure. Okay. So maybe a good place to start would be a definition of autophagy. Um, so obviously it mean it means uh, self-eating or self-devouring this process that happens inside the cell to mm. uh, clean out old machinery, to renew cellular processes, um, and also mitochondria. Could you give um, uh, a definition of, of what it means then to uh, to have this process running? Yeah, sure. Um, so you, you nailed it. Ab absolutely. It's self-eating, um, autophagy, uh, but auto being self and then phagy being consumption. Um, but there's actually multiple different versions of autophagy. Uh, and some of them are, there's obviously the one where you're, you're eating components of the, of the cell for cellular cleanup, or if it's to deal with some sort of, uh, aberrant signaling that's happening within the cell, or uh, if it's to just go through its normal functions of you've got these proteins or these organelles that have kind of run their course, they've been around for, uh, we'll call it their life expectancy, and therefore then autophagy has to come in and destroy those organelles and those proteins. But there's other versions uh, like xenophagy, which is uh, a type of autophagy which isn't, te you're technically removing the auto. So you're technically attacking something else. You're not attacking something that's within your cells. Uh, you're actually attacking something like a virus or a bacteria. Um, in those situations, if you have a virus that infects your cells, then you have this autophagy machinery that can come up and essentially consume it and destroy the virus before it actually starts to replicate within your cells. And there are uh, other types of autophagy as well, but those are kind of the two main ones obviously i mentioned mitophagy as well uh we our lab just started doing a little bit of research in pexophagy which is uh the destruction of peroxisomes which is another organelle that's found uh within within our cells which a lot of people don't focus on but it's certainly something i plan on creating some content on as well uh, it might be something that you'd be interested in as well especially with a, a background in insulin i would uh put some emphasis on not just mitochondria, but also having some focus on uh, peroxisomes as well. So there's a number of different ways autophagy works and there's a number of different definitions, but the ultimate, the bottom line is that you end up degrading or destroying some component within the cell. Okay, sure. Um, with the goal of the cell uh, being restored to a, a better level of function, um, because obviously when things get degraded, uh, they don't tend to work as well. And so uh, a kind of spring cleaning of uh, those old, uh, old components and then the replacing of, the, uh, of them so the cell can just work better. Um, yes. Yeah, typically. I think, I think an oncologist or a cancer researcher might push back and say that uh, you can have situations where autophagy can be detrimental to our health. But uh, generally, in a in a healthy physiological system, that's absolutely right. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, of course, uh, we want to get away from things being good and bad. Surely, it's uh, there. There are times when maybe autophagy may not be uh, completely beneficial. But for the most part, uh, when we're thinking about uh, metabolic health and insulin and longevity and uh, 
So that's it's something we want to try to promote, I, I imagine. Yeah. Sure. Okay, great. So um, it's this process that gets triggered. What is it exactly that, that triggers autophagy then? Yeah, so you can look at it from a few different uh, levels. You can look at it from like a nutrient level. You can look at it from a molecular level. But uh, I suppose the, the main, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll touch on both. Um, so you have these molecules within your cells and when I say molecules, I'm usually talking about proteins that have particular structures. They're, uh, they're made up of specific amino acids, let's say like 400 amino acids that have been stitched together. And then they've been stitched together in such a way that they have a particular conformation. They look a certain way. They're, they're shaped a certain way. And because they have that particular shape, they serve a, a specific function within the cell. And some of those molecules, which I, I usually deem them uh, master molecules, would be uh, something like AMPK, uh, AMP kinase. And AMP kinase is one of the big triggers of autophagy. So essentially everything gets fed. You have multiple signaling molecules, multiple, let's call them minor signaling molecules upstream of AMPK. And they will influence AMPK in one way or another through uh, different tags like phosphorylation, for example, or through the binding of particular molecules specifically to AMPK. AMPK will then become active, so it'll change its shape just slightly, which turns it into more of an active state. And then from there, it's going to activate another molecule that's downstream of AMPK called ULK. Then ULK then allows the attraction and the activation of multiple specific autophagy molecules. These autophagy molecules start to aggregate together and start to create the autophagy machinery. So that's kind of on a molecular scale, but then like what actually activates the, the molecules above AMPK and what can also directly affect AMPK is things like uh, calorie restriction, uh, reductions in amino acids, specifically leucine. Um, so I think those would probably be the, the big two. Okay, sure. Yes. I mean, if we're thinking about AMPK, thinking about also it getting up regulated when we exercise, uh, yeah, fasting state. And so when we're thinking about insulin, we're thinking about these two states, the fed state and the fasted state. And so um, I imagine that when uh, insulin is low, this is a, a, a state where AMP is going to be, AMPK is going to be more active. And that's a time when the body is going to be um, kind of uh, activating this autophagy autophagy process. Um, would that be about right? Is it insulin? Are we talking about a low insulin state favoring autophagy? Yeah, I think that would be fair to say. Sure. Okay, great. And of course, there are other things which we come across activating AMPK. Uh, metformin is well known, um, green, green tea to a lesser extent, berberine and these things. Um, so um, does that mean that um, AMPK then is the kind of um, the thing we're aiming to activate? Is that um, if we want to try to improve or increase autophagy, are we thinking about everything which can be related to AMPK? Yeah, I think that would be uh, I think that would be pretty fair. I, they're probably they're pro they're probably discovered and undiscovered mechanisms that also activate AMPK that are independent of kind of the main system, the main molecular system that I just described. 
but uh, I think that in broad strokes, I think AMPK, that's why I call it the, this master protein, one of several, um, is because it has such wide-reaching effects, and it has wide-reaching effects that can be positive beyond just uh, its activation of autophagy. So I think generally, yes, but there are drawbacks to, to constantly trying to chase the activation of, of AMPK. So I don't, I don't want uh, people to think that, you know, oh, I'll just activate AMPK and then that's going to solve all my problems. It's certainly not that easy. But um, in terms of strictly activating autophagy, aiming for something like the activation of AMPK would be a great way to go. Sure. Okay. Yes. I mean, when we find uh, mechanisms like this, there is the tendency to think, how can we game the system sort of thing? Like um, I remember reading about NRF2, this wonder molecule that acti activates, um, you know, antioxidant regeneration and things, but there are dangers to the overactivation of this system with, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals and so on. I think probably the thing to take away from this is it's a, uh, a natural part of our biology that is supposed to be cycled in and out of as we feed and as we fast, as we exercise and as we rest, these cycles which then turn these systems on and off. And, and this autophagy is just a natural part of uh, our biology that comes and goes with our, with our lifestyle rather than saying, okay, well, I can eat um, hamburgers, every two hours, but I can take uh, some sort of uh, pharmaceutical to turn on AMPK. That way I can keep um, keep eating what I like or uh, live a sedentary lifestyle. I think that's probably the, um, the temptation when we have these things that can uh, interfere with, um, with these pathways. Um, so perhaps we should take a step back and say, well, what happens when autophagy is not uh, following these uh, natural cycles when it's not regularly turned on. How does that lead to metabolic problems or chronic disease uh, and so on? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, so funny enough, our lab released a scientific review specifically on this topic um, where we investigated well, we didn't actually investigate some of some of our research has been related to this, but we also aggregated a lot of research from other groups as well. And essentially, if you have a deficient autophagy or reduced autophagy in an aberrant uh, fashion, then you get the buildup of different proteins um, and organelles. But specifically, what we focused on were the the proteins themselves. So. You can think of it like you've got these two systems within your cells, these two primary systems that get rid of dysfunctional proteins, uh, functional proteins that I said have kind of run their course. And if you remove one of them, which is autophagy, the other one is called the uh, ubiquitin proteasome system, but we're focused on autophagy. If you remove autophagy, the proteasome is much smaller, so it can't deal with everything that happens within the cell. They're not like necessarily backup systems to one another. Um, they just complement one another. And, you know, there's a little bit of crossover sometimes, but typically you want both of them to, to be functional if you have a particular outcome in mind. If you're trying to get rid of like an organelle, for example, you, you typically have to go with the much beefier, stronger uh larger autophagy system. So 
if you lose that autophagy system, then you do start to get uh, a mass accumulation of different proteins. Um, you can have these accumulations of, I think they're called a HTP proteins. Uh, you can have the accumulation of there's a uh, hunting tin proteins, uh, which the hunting tin protein is uh, related to hunting tins disease. Um, you can have the aberrant accumulation of proteins around and inside of mitochondria, so they can get uh, located to mitochondria. They can build up within the cell, then they can get located to mitochondria, can enter mitochondria, and then build up within the mitochondria in itself, which leads to mass mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, you can have the actual organelles themselves that don't function anymore because for our cells to be functioning correctly, as we've kind of been talking about, uh, you need to be able to get rid of some of those dysfunctional proteins, but also certainly the organelles and mitochondria can become dysfunctional over time. Um, we have a really interesting system by which our cells can, can dilute some of the negative effects to mitochondria. So if you have, uh, a dysfunctional mitochondrion and you have a functional mitochondrion, what your cells can do if necessary is to fuse the two. And then you might be thinking, well, why would it do that? Uh, the reason for that is to try to dilute the, the negative aspects of the dysfunctional mitochondria with the functional mitochondria. It can also do the opposite. So it can pinch off sections of dysfunctional mitochondria and eject those out of the, uh, the fully functioning mitochondria. And after that, then it would typically go under autophagy, that dysfunctional part. So if you have the buildup of these dys dysfunctional mitochondria, then you start to produce a lot more of things like oxidative stress, which is extremely common in general. Um, but that can also then start to influence signaling molecules, which would then, let's relate it to insulin, for example, which can, which can I wouldn't say necessarily destroy, but uh, inhibit some of the signaling molecules that would be downstream of the insulin cascade. So uh, with elevated oxidative stress, you would get uh, potentially higher activation of something like a protein called JNK, so junk, and then that can affect the insulin pathway. Um, but even directly, if you just look at mitochondria directly, if you start to accrue, let's say 40% dysfunctional mitochondria, eventually the cell dies. Uh, so you start having loss of cells themselves. Um, and there's also uh, ways that the cell can essentially end its life uh, through mitochondria specifically. So it can sense the dysfunction that's happening within itself and these mitochondria will ultimately lead to the cell succumbing because it can't allow, quote unquote, allow, not that it's thinking about this, but the genetic programming and the, the cellular programming within the cell can't allow for the cell to continue to survive while it's constantly radiating oxidative stress. So eventually it either becomes senescent or it uh, ends up undergoing apoptosis, which is uh, cell death. So there's wide reaching consequences, but if you're talking specifically about like metabolism, um, I would say the biggest issue would be on mitochondria. Sure, okay, yes. Well, it's all related. I mean, so um, if the mitophagy isn't working, yes, like you're saying, build up of uh, dysfunctional mitochondria 
and then um, electron leakage, excess oxidative stress, and then that starts to damage all sorts of different um, processes in the cell, uh, also starts to inhibit, yes, uh, also proteins like IRS1 that get inhibited along the insulin chain. And um, I guess also, I mean, that oxidative stress is then going to start to damage other parts of the cell, and that's going to need even more autophagy to come in and clean that up. So it probably starts to become a bit of a kind of um, vicious cycle that kind of self accumulates. And so you're saying at some point the cell just says, okay, enough. Uh, uh, this cell has is risking to become, for example, uh, cancerous or risking to become, um, yes, severely dysfunctional, then apoptosis sets in and and, um, and the cell disappears, dies. So um, so then people were following uh, this normal cycle of fasting and feeding, autophagy gets turned on, on and off, mitophagy activates, cleans out these old, um, these old damaged mitochondria and other cellular pieces. Um, and that keeps everything working functionally. Um, and the thing which came into my mind was this is also related to overnutrition. Overnutrition could be a big driver of, um, of this issue, not only because uh, it, it uh, keeps insulin high and, and, and puts the brakes on autophagy, but also because uh, it might cause proteins to, or increased oxidative stress, first of all, from the mitochondria, but also protein misfolding um, from the endoplasmic reticulum. And so um, that would be one factor. What do you think are the main other factors which could cause this, these autophagy processes, particularly mitophagy, to, to break down? So overconsumption is a huge one. Uh, I would probably say that might be the main one um, because there's a, another master molecule which plays off. You can think of uh, AMPK and this, this one called mTOR uh, to be very antithetic to one another. Uh, if one is more active, then typically the other one is less active because the, the nutrients and the different factors that stimulate one tend to uh, inhibit the other one. And the reason why I mentioned that and related to your overconsumption point is that when you do overconsume regularly, um, ultimately you end up activating mTOR a lot more, which has a direct line on inhibiting AMPK. So not only do those nutrients themselves inhibit AMPK, but they can activate mTOR, which will then uh, deactivate uh, AMPK. Now, mTOR can then, to your point about protein misfolding, can then lead to greater levels of protein synthesis, which leads to cell growth, which is all fine and dandy, but um, can also ultimately then lead to uh, a lot more of these proteins being misfolded. And if you have an inhibited AMPK and a lot more of this uh, accrual of protein misfolding, then you start to develop a bit of an issue if you're continuously stimulating uh, mTOR and thereby, thereby uh, reducing autophagy. I think exercise is one that you, you briefly mentioned. That's another big one. Uh, certainly AMP AMPK can be activated through uh, exercise, especially during the process and a little bit afterwards. Um, I think that's really just playing on that same lever. You're, you're reducing the nutrients. Uh, it has specific effects as well. It certainly reduces insulin levels. Uh, beyond that, I think, 
I think those would probably be the two main ones that would focus on certainly protein consumption, but I think people get a little too wild with that. Um, if you reduce your protein consumption, because uh, that can have a direct effect on AMPK and mTOR as well. Um, and then there are certain drugs. I think you mentioned uh, metformin at one point that can specifically inhibit uh, mitochondria which then leads to a change in the cellular environment within the cell, which can also has, have an effect on uh, AMPK. So there's a number of different mechanisms, but I think the big two, I'll leave protein a little bit further down. Uh, the big two would be overconsumption would lead to issues with uh, autophagy and uh, lack of exercise would also be an issue. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, what about circadian rhythms? Um, is there a rhythm to, obviously this is a, a kind of newish field of research and it's kind of difficult to, I don't know if, the, if your lab has done any work on sort of a circadian rhythm to autophagy or times of the day where it might be more active, or is it literally related to um, mainly to AMPK? So I, I'll definitely state, I don't know, I haven't looked into this um, whatsoever, but circadian rhythms are, incre I mean, they're incredibly important. Uh, and it is true. I mean, if you, if you look at other measures, like let's say like blood pressure, for example, I mean, that oscillates up and down based off of our circadian rhythm. So what I think that was, especially with changes in hormones over time, you know, like cortisol, testosterone and things like that, I, I'd be shocked if there weren't if you were to look at a basal state throughout the day of, let's say, MPK activation or autophagy as a whole, uh, would you maybe see these oscillations also found in the cell? I mean, I, I, I would bet that there probably is a lot of that going on. Have we studied? Have I studied it? No. So I can't speak with any sort of confidence. I'm just making an educated speculation. Sure. I guess, yes, it would be very difficult to measure because, um, of course, nighttime is a time when we are generally not eating and not moving. So of course, the indirect important factors of diet and exercise are going to be at play all throughout the day at different measures. And so it'd be very difficult to track it down. Uh, but yes, um, looking into, for example, insulin signaling, um, following a circadian rhythm being uh, us being most sensitive uh, around about midday and, and perhaps being least sensitive around about three or four in the morning, um, that surely will play into it. There's probably a a time when the body would prefer to uh, switch on autophagy and clean out. Uh, I would guess that it would be nighttime, but um, yes, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I guess it's a, it's a new area. Okay, great. Yes. And of course with that, um, because when we're talking about circadian rhythms and cortisol, um, it's also talking about the, the effects of uh, chronic stress and cortisol dysregulation. And does cortisol, um, does cortisol turn off autophagy? Does it, um, by virtue of raising blood sugar, or is is that not really uh, a thing? I think uh, this is again me thinking off the top of my head. My, I mean, I certainly understand the effects of cortisol. Like, yes, there would be an increase in uh, blood sugar, which could certainly enter the cells, which probably would enter the cells, and which would then lead to an increase in substrate available to then inhibit. Uh, autophagy. The other thing too with cortisol is that you see, you typically see an increase in uh, amino acids over time if it is chronic. So 
depending on the amino acids, typically those are gluconeogenic uh, amino acids. So is it possible that that's not directly having an effect on uh, autophagy? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, but so I'm thinking about it from two different perspectives. I, I haven't actually looked at the literature on this, but on one hand, I think maybe on downstream tissues, let's say, let's say you get the release of uh, cortisol and then you start to have certain tissues that have to be degraded, right? If you're going to be removing amino acids, typically you have to degrade some sort of protein or some sort of component within the cell. Um, so for that, maybe you would need to increase autophagy in those tissues, the feeding tissues, let's say, uh, for example, like the liver, which tends to be the mo most sacrificing uh, organ. And then maybe downstream, if you're talking about the effects that it has on some other tissues, let's say muscle or whatever it might have, um, then maybe you would have an inhibition of autophagy. I'm just speculating, but um, I do know that with an increase in substrate, you would have an effect, a, a downregulation of, uh, of autophagy. So I don't know, but I think, um, I think it's, if I had to guess, I would say that there would be a reduction in autophagy in most systems, but that's just an educated guess. Sure. I appreciate your speculation. <clears throat> it's sure. a, a well-educated guess as well. As long as you know that well. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that's in fact something I I, um, I like about your channel and I invite uh, anybody who's listening to this to go and check out Physionic and check out your YouTube channel uh, because um, there is what we know scientifically demonstrated in a lab in vivo uh, or in vitro. And then there's what we can apply loosely to what we see and perhaps guess and, and imagine where we're going next. And I think probably it's uh, underappreciated the amount of work and effort and time that we need to, or scientists need to invest into finding out these, um, these uh, details. I mean, if we think about how much research has changed over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, it was only in um, uh, a few a few years ago, very recently uh, in, in in history, that uh, some of these mechanisms for autophagy was nailed down, and um, you know this was a process that was unknown not so long ago. So, yeah, true. <laughs> so um, something we hear quite often is that um, if somebody fasts for say eighteen hours, they're going to turn on autophagy and um, is there any is there any truth to that? Is there a way that we can measure uh, in vivo and what's happening in somebody? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. This is a very popular topic for a lot of people. <laughs> um, <laughs> it as with almost anything, it's a nuanced answer. But um, yeah, I mean, fasting overall, sure, it, it definitely uh, increases autophagy. I think I think the difficulty is that. A lot of the research that's been done in autophagy has been done in mice, for example. So if you fast a, my, a mouse for, let's say, 16 hours, 18 hours, like you would with a human, those are completely different uh, circumstances. That's like fasting a human for like four days straight um, because the, the lifespan and the, the, the reactions happen so much more quickly in a mouse than they do in a human being. So the translation is difficult. We can, we can look at the overall mechanisms and say, okay, yeah, it, this, it increases, uh, autophagy, but 
is it on a time scale one to one? It's almost never on a one to one time scale. So the translation is really difficult. So the answer is yes, fasting does increase autophagy. Uh, the actual time scale is really difficult to tease out. There are ways that we could find out, but here's where more nuance needs to be applied because let's say a person is interested in uh, learning about autophagy specifically to remove. I know the beta amyloid uh, whole idea with Alzheimer's is under attack uh, at, at the moment, but let's just put that aside for a second. Let's just say the beta amyloid uh, theory is exactly right. And that's the main issue. You have this buildup of beta amyloid in and around your neurons, your, your uh, brain cells. And you're thinking, okay, well, if I have this buildup of this plaque, maybe I can use autophagy to get rid of it. Um, the problem was that we can't determine the time frame for when you start to see that increase in autophagy in the brain, because we need actual samples of a person's brain to be able to do that. And most people aren't going to be too keen <laughs> on giving up some neurons because that would be an incredibly invasive surgery. But on the other hand, what we can test is muscle because it's readily available across our body. Um, so yeah, we can, you know, it hasn't been done yet as far as I'm aware, but what would be a really cool experiment and pretty easy to do, actually really easy to do, it'd probably just take a few weeks, uh, would be to just have people fast for, let's say, 16 hours. You could take a sample from their arm or from their leg. Their leg is the most typical. And then take that protein and then measure for different autophagy markers. And you could actually test for autophagy itself. So it, the big picture here that I'm trying to get across is, one, there's differences in the in how difficult it is to measure autophagy. And the second thing is that it can vary from tissue to tissue. So especially if you're talking about something like the brain, which is highly preserved. I mean, your, your body is trying to preserve the brain to the maximum ability that it possibly can. The reason, one of the chief reasons why we start to release glucose and from, uh, from gluconeogenesis is to preserve the brain. So, you know, if you have these, these peripheral tissues, like the, the, the muscles, the bones, et cetera, et cetera, that they may have an autophagy reaction that maybe occurs much sooner than it might happen in the brain. So it may take five days of fasting for the brain to start seeing autophagy, and it may take only uh, 10 hours or 16 hours for, for the muscles to start seeing autophagy. Um, and the other thing that I would say to this is that if you were to, if we were to look at things from like an energy equated standpoint, some people, um, which actually I'm one of these people, sometimes I will uh, intermittent fast throughout the day. And then I'll, you know, I, I keep records of exactly what I eat and all, you know, the amount that I eat and whatnot. And I know that not everybody does that, but typically if you're maintaining your body weight, there's going to be some level of caloric or energy balance that's occurring. So if you're not consuming, let's say for 16 hours out of the day, and then you stuff yourself uh, with all of your energy intake in the final, let's say, let's say a final three hours of the, your waking day, then I'm curious if you, you maybe start to ramp up autophagy during that time that you're fasting, and then you massively down regulate autophagy to the point where it's crawling when you're consuming so much energy dense food. Um, so I wonder if you were to then, then 
equilibrate that over time, let's say over a 24 hour period, would there be any differences in what's called the area under the curve? So looking at the, the overall change that occurs over a 24 hour period, my speculation is that, that, that there would be no difference. Um, but it's also possible that there would be a time effect where with the fasting for 16 hours, you do start to see an effect and it's still higher than if you were to just consume the same caloric yield uh, throughout the day, let's say over five small meals or three meals or whatever it might be. So, but to answer your question, uh, there's nobody has a clear answer. Um, I would for sure multiple days of fasting will increase autophagy. I think that's for sure. Uh, the intermittent fasting, the within the day fasting, if that increases autophagy, that's that's the area where we're we're not sure. Okay, yeah, great. It's definitely uh, always so much more complicated than we might imagine than just do this and you'll have this result. And it makes perfect sense that um, it's tissue specific so that tissues or cells that have a greater need for autophagy are going to be perhaps the cells that upregulate it uh, uh, sooner. And um, yes, without some a lot of detailed research and some uh, willing volunteers uh, who want to donate a neuron or two, mm -hmm. then it would be difficult to say what it would be happening in the in the brain. Um, but broadly speaking, yes, I mean, uh, you focused on the beta amyloid plaque. I mean, um, the latest research around that is looking at also uh, amyloid buildup being a, a reaction to a, a central nervous system infection. And so, but even then, uh, autophagy is probably going to be a necessary uh, component to um, getting rid of uh, bacteria, viruses, and that sort of thing. Um, and um, other, for example, research around maybe um, energy issues in the brain, the sort of type 3 diabetes scope, um, autophagy is going to be helping with there as well, because if it's reducing um, mitochondrial dysfunction, um, reducing worn out proteins and then allowing cells to function energetically optimally. So I think what's important is that it works on so many different levels. I mean, it's, it's so broad in the way that it works is that we don't really need to know so much the details of everything that's happening. If we know that broadly speaking, uh, fasting exercise, uh, the, the general things related to a healthy lifestyle, most likely following a good circadian rhythm, getting sunshine in the day, darkness and melatonin at night, these sorts of things, then we can say that they are going to be uh, most likely broadly beneficial to autophagy because that's how we've evolved to, uh, to function. Um, so do you think in the future there will be like a, a way that we can measure, like go into the lab and get a test or maybe even um, like uh biometric or something to, to measure our autophagy? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I think, uh, I don't think that would be an issue whatsoever. Um, all you need is uh, cells and then you can look at a number of different markers. Um, you can look at like LC3 or you can look at uh, ULK. You could look at a lot of these different, uh, different markers. I think typically you could look at the protein levels. I would, I would typically look at the protein levels of what's of this protein called LC3. It, there's a, a LC3 one and there's an LC3 two. And if you see high levels of LC3 two, then you typically know you have a pretty good idea that there's uh, autophagy occurring. So you could look at the protein levels or 
in something that we already do, which is what the whole uh, <clears throat> the whole pandemic was surrounding um, was the looking at uh, mRNA or looking at uh, DNA. So you can also look at those as well. Typically, you'd want to look at the protein measures, but that can be a little bit more that can that can be a little bit more time consuming as opposed to doing like a, a DNA test or an RNA test. Um, but if you could see elevated levels of certain autophagy markers, specifically the, the gene or the, uh, the RNA that comes from that gene, then yeah, it should be, should be pretty simple. Sure. Yes. And I guess uh, if you're measuring downstream effects as well, I mean, what you're interested in is, is the result of autophagy. So, mm. uh, measures of oxidative stress, chronic inflammation, um, insulin signaling, and everything else which goes along with, you know, these markers that we know that lead to uh, better or worse or worse health outcomes. Okay, great. So um, what would be the thing uh, to finish off talking about autophagy? Um, I think we've got, had a really good overview there of what it is, why it's important, how we can think about activating it. Um, what would you like to see in the future, like a kind of breakthrough in the autophagy world um, in terms of research or um, yes, or lifestyle intervention or, or, or something like that. If you could have a piece of knowledge uh, as if by magic, <laughs> what might it be? <laughs> if I can harken back to our previous question, I think I would want to know how long it takes to, to see this induction, this higher than baseline induction of autophagy in people. Uh, that would be I don't think it's that difficult, especially in, in muscle. Uh, it wouldn't be that difficult. It would be more difficult, but it wouldn't be that difficult to potentially do it in some other cells, certainly skin cells, you could easily do it. Um, and then you could get into some more invasive measures like liver, kidneys, things like that. You get samples of those as well. But, um, you know, I, I think in general, it'd be great just for general knowledge and so that I can actually have an answer when people ask me. <laughs> uh, to, to <laughs> sure, know. you can say it's 17 and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're, um, yes, if you're 179 centimeters tall or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get, yeah. get that specific, really blow people's minds by saying sure. this is the exact <laughs> point. Don't eat until this point right here. <laughs> sure. That'd be great. Well, there's also there's some interesting research around fasting and specifically around the fasting mimicking diet as well mm. um, with using autophagy to reduce people's cancer risk and um, increase metabolic health and immune function and so on. Um, would you say there's any benefits uh, between the fasting mimicking diets uh, and normal fasting or intermittent fasting or just straight up water fasting? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think all of them have, I, I think all of them have serious benefit. I think the degrees to which you receive that benefit is dependent on the type of fasting that you do. So I would say fasting would be the most extreme, uh, the, like a complete water fast. And I suppose, you know, I've, I've gotten comments from people that get confused by water fasting. It's literally just consuming water. That's, that's it. Um, some people think that you're eliminating water. Like that's the thing that you're actually fasting from. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just, just as an added point, but yeah, so water fasting, where you're just consuming water that will certainly, uh, have it's, it's the most extreme form and it's going to have the most extreme level of change that occurs within your body. Um, the one 
after that, if people can't tolerate water fasting, because many people can't, they just have real difficulty. Let's say they get three days in or whatever it might be, or some people do little uh, variations. I think that a fasting mimicking diet, which has even more research behind it uh, from Walter Longo, um, that is also an excellent uh, way to go. It allows you to consume a little bit of food but you there's i mean there's plenty of studies at this point now and certainly there are going to be more that have shown that fasting mimicking diets just five days uh five days out of one entire month can have profound effects that last for well over a month actually i mean i think the the minimum they recommend something is like uh five days per three months which is certainly doable i mean i i, I could certainly do that um so five days per three months, you still see substantial benefit at the end of the three months. It certainly starts to creep back upwards as you return back to your old lifestyle, but it can have positive effects regardless. And certainly if you do it once every month, then you're definitely going to continue to have these uh, pretty strong effects. And then intermittent fasting is the one where you know, there's more and more research coming out about it. It's not as magical as people thought it was. Um, I think that, I think it no doubt has benefits in terms of <clears throat> giving people kind of a regulated schedule that they stick to. I think that is invaluable for a lot of people. I think that it could potentially have some positive effects. That's something I need to investigate further um, because we do have enough research in that area. I think that we could start to tease out some of the, the benefits compared to not fasting at all. Um, but I think that they're far more mild. I think you start to really start to see these fasting effects as you get into the 24 hour range and beyond, as well as, um, as when you're doing fasting mimicking diets, which where you are technically still consuming, but you're consuming such low levels and a very specific proportion of, uh, of low protein foods, really low calories that it, as the name implies, mimics fasting. So I would say water fasting, fasting mimicking diet, and then potentially there may be some benefits from intermittent fasting, but uh, we, we need to look into some of those mechanisms. Sure, right, yes. Yeah, I definitely found the, the fasting mimicking diets um, beneficial, um, but and not so easy as well, because I had a few metabolic challenges when I was starting out. And so it was a good... Uh, initial start into um, yes going at it in easy I think there's the tendency to uh, really push oneself and say okay now I'm going to do a water fast for the next five or ten days or whatever and I think that could be quite dangerous in some cases because uh, our metabolism if it's been used to uh, eating uh, carbs and uh, overeating and refined foods and whatever for a, a long period of time, then to suddenly jump into uh, a, a fast, it's it's a shock to the system. So I think water fast or um, the fasting mimicking diets represents a good kind of bridge into becoming more metabolically healthy, um, improving fat burning or fat oxidizing uh, cap uh, capabilities and so on. I think there might be one more extreme uh, fasting, which I've seen around, which uh, a, a, a small minority of people seem to adhere to, which is dry fasting, which is when they go without water. Um, I'm not sure I would, uh, I'd feel so secure in doing that. People rave about the benefits, but um, I think this is uh, also 
from a research point of view, it doesn't seem that there's that much research perhaps behind that as well. Uh, that could be potentially quite dangerous. So, yeah. um, yeah. Okay. So, um, that's, that's great. I think that's, um, given us a lot of interesting information about, uh, that, that's autophagy and also how to apply it in our daily lives. Um, let's move on now to talk a little bit about uh, different fats, because I was really interested in watching uh, some of your videos about looking into the effect of different types of uh, fat um, on insulin signaling and on metabolism in general. And what I found really fascinating was that um, you were uh, carefully making some uh, a, a good review of animal studies and then seeing where it may be applicable, but actually saying there's, there's not that many, um, much really good research around the effect of different fats on, um, in vivo without doing things like, um, intravenous, uh, um, feeding and so on. So maybe you could give an overview. What if, what has your research led to your thinking about fats? Is uh, saturated fats uh, really that bad for our insulin signaling and our metabolism? Yeah, I spent, uh, I spent a lot of time on this, um, which actually from the get-go, I think I made a mistake, uh, not, not in my conclusions or anything, but the, when I, when I was first releasing this content um, and looking into these studies, I, I kind of went at it from an, an inverse perspective. I, I was looking at the mechanisms. I was looking at uh, in vitro studies first. Then I went to in vivo, which is uh, specifically in animals. And then I went to humans. And I probably should have done it. And now, now I've changed my tune in terms of how I do my uh, the, the presentations. Um, now I do it more in humans first, see if there's maybe an effect. Then I go into animal research, which is far more invasive and you can do a lot more uh, research. And then of course, in vitro, you can essentially do anything you want. Um, so, but that ultimately didn't change my, my conclusions uh, either way. It's just the way that I presented things. I remember people were like, well, because uh, I initially released the, the, the cell work and people were like, well, this doesn't mean anything. I, I don't care about this because people get incredibly defensive about uh saturated fats it's it's pretty remarkable um so but anyway to, to answer your question uh overall what i've seen across a a huge swath of studies i mean i'm talking i've personally read at least 20 studies on the topic, specifically in humans, not even including my in vitro or the in vivo or anything like that. And almost all of them universally show that saturated fat is uh, a negative for insulin sensitivity. Um, and the better fats would be monounsaturated fats, which tend to be uh, certainly better than saturated, but not as good as polyunsaturated. Polyunsaturated fats seem to just consistently show that uh, they have the most remarkable changes in insulin sensitivity. If you're going from, let's say, a place of insulin resistance and you want to get to a point of being more insulin sensitive, certainly, I think you alluded to it, maybe this was uh, before we started recording, but talking about the ketogenic diet, a lot of people jump on the ketogenic diet because they're removing carbohydrates, re reduces blood sugar, obviously reduces insulin levels. 
and then the idea is then you become more insulin sensitive and to a degree that's there's you know there's a lot of truth to that because you're consuming less carbohydrates and therefore yes you will see redu reductions in blood sugar and you'll see reductions in the requisite insulin that follows so that's all fair and, and well and good but the types of fats that you end up replacing it with um if you replace it with polyunsaturated fats i mean the the reversal the mass reversal in insulin uh, resistance is really profound but when you do get you still get the same effects you still see a drop in blood sugar you still see a drop in insulin if you consume a lot of saturated fats because the the greatest driver is still carbohydrates but um you are on a cellular level you're still having a, a good amount of insulin resistant markers that are that are uh happening so my my conclusion up to this point has been that saturated fats are the of of the three let's say fats if i know there are subcategories under them but saturated mono and polyunsaturated i'd say saturated would be the worst in terms of filling your diet with that to combat insulin resistance and polyunsaturated would be the best um and but there's there's also there's a lot of research that I still need to do because a lot of the pushback that people say I think the more reasonable people let me say that um, that, that offer pushback and they say well lumping all saturated fats under one umbrella is unfair and I completely agree uh, I'm I the focus that I had was on palmitate because palmitate is the most abundant saturated fat. So that's why I focused on that one. And I did a little bit of research on stearate as well, but there are other saturated fats and some of them just from peripherally, just, just like my eyes glanced over a scientific review here and there, they did mention that certain saturated fats may not have that insulin uh, sensitivity hit so that they may be inert in that regard. So it is possible that, you know, in a few years, as I read more into this, that I might be able to tease out certain saturated fats do have this negative effect and other saturated fats do not have this negative effect. So, but I haven't gotten to that point, so I, I can't speak to it uh, to that degree. Sure. And, um, Yes, I think it's it's interesting because the the waters are muddied a lot with the whole ideological debate because obviously saturated fat uh, coming mostly from animals and polyunsaturated coming mostly from uh, from plants and so that obviously gets people uh, very much um, in one camp or the other often um, and of course the industry impact as well like we've seen the increase in uh, polyunsaturated fats, but in the forms of uh, seed oils, which are often highly industrialized, highly refined, extracted using uh, chemicals, and they uh, have been shown to cause a fair bit of oxidative stress in the body. And so that's going to be a very different fat to consuming, for example, a walnut straight off a tree or, um, you know, monounsaturated from an olive that you... Um, that you have or whatever. So um, also the context is important, I think, because, um, you know, are these studies happening uh, in the context of a whole foods diet? Are they happening in, in with refined fats? Are these fats, fats oxidized? Are they still integral? Uh, also, is there overnutrition? Because obviously any macronutrient that is consumed 
uh, in an overnutrition context is going to cause the same sort of problems. Um, what is the mechanism then, do you think, for saturated fats? What does it actually do on a cellular level? There's this idea that they kind of gum up the insulin receptor. And I think that's kind of uh, uh, reductionist and probably uh, far from the truth. So what is it about palmitate exactly that may dampen down this response? Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, that's true. It's, well, I suppose it's not, uh, it's not entirely untrue, but <laughs> it always makes me laugh because people have these, uh, you said gum up. I mean, it's so true. It's, that's the way that people describe things. That's like the extent of the, the molecular knowledge just, yeah, it just gums it up. <laughs> Yeah. which always makes me a, a, a chuckle but because yes there's the kind of uh, idea of chewing gum in a lock yeah well, that that kind of makes sense right. you can't get the key in the door mm -hmm. and so you think well that probably applies to a very tiny lock as well i mean <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. but then you know if if you have people that are obsessed with learning like the molecular happenings within the cell i mean gumming up the receptor just doesn't uh <laughs> doesn't fulfill you so Exactly. So the the mechanism that um, so this is from the in vitro studies and from uh, some of the in vivo studies in animals, which obviously we, again we can get a lot more invasive with. Um, and I focused on muscle. I, I you know I need to look at some other tissues, but so we'll see if it actually translates to other tissues. I suppose I I looked at the pancreas as well, so I looked at both uh, muscle and the pancreas. But anyway, so the the idea is that palmitate will enter the the uh, cell. And then from there, it can be converted to ceramides. So there's an enzyme that takes the saturated fat. We'll focus on palmitate because again, I, you know, I have to see if this actually extends to other saturated fats as well. Uh, this enzyme called ceramide synthase will essentially attach to the saturated fat and will change its conformation, change its shape um, and add what's known as a sphingosine molecule. So sphingosine plus the saturate plus this palmitate will ultimately then lead to the production of a ceramide. This ceramide, it's not that ceramides are necessarily horrible or anything like that, because I, I know some people get confused because they're like, well, I had ceramides in my skin serum. So does that mean that I'm hurting my skin? It, ser like there's a lot of molecules that we produce that we use but if you overproduce them, then they can start to quote unquote uh, gunk up the the system, right? Um, so you have another example would be like oxidative stress, like reactive oxygen species. You you produce a little bit of them, and that's actually beneficial to your health because they help in uh, signaling within your cells. They actually tell your cells, okay, make more of this protein, make less of this protein, whatever it might be. Um, so same thing with ceramides. If you have some of it, that's good. They, they offer uh, kind of a balance. They allow for signaling to happen within the cells. But if you start to produce a lot of them, then they can have negative effects. And the way that they have negative effects is that they can actually interact with uh, this uh, J and K protein, which is which I mentioned earlier for, I think, the autophagy section, where this J and K protein then becomes more active and the activity because of this interaction with this uh, ceramide leads to downstream signaling that ultimately ramps up oxidative stress. The, the, the mitochondria will start to generate a lot more oxidative stress. Also on top of that palmitate needs to be oxidized. So 
as it enters the cell, another mechanism is that it can go to mitochondria and start to overload mitochondria to the point where it, it kind of goes to back to one of your points earlier of the overconsumption. But it's kind of the overconsumption of a molecule that needs to be eliminated quickly. So the mitochondria then start to produce oxidative stress, which I think you also pointed this out, that you start doing damage to all the other sections of, of the cell. And then finally, there is another one where I think it was ceramides or maybe uh, ceramides directly or it was J and K that can feed back onto this IRS molecule that I think you mentioned again, um, the IRS molecule being the, the molecule that's found on just the, the other side of the cell membrane. So of the insulin receptor. So the insulin receptor for anybody listening, I know that you already know this, but for the insulin receptor that's embedded inside of the cell membrane to translate a signal from the insulin binding to the insulin receptor outside of the cell to then translate that signal into the cell. It's not uh, insulin that's being, that's actually entering the cell. It's just being stuck to the outside of the cell through this receptor. There, there's a conformational change of the insulin receptor, which then leads to the attraction of this protein, this molecule IRS or insulin receptor substrate. And there are different tagging points on that IRS molecule that will then either allow or disallow it from continuing the signal to the rest of the cell to essentially uh, to think of it like a trumpeteer, like uh, trumpeting the arrival of insulin. It'll either do it or it won't do it. And ceramides and JNK, specifically, I know JNK, but possibly specifically through ceramides as well, you have JNK will feed back onto that IRS molecule and phosphorylate it or add a phosphate group to a phosphate tag to that IRS molecule, which will tell that IRS molecule ignore the binding of insulin on the outside. So then you do not have that translation of uh, the, the insulin binding to the insulin receptor, which then means if you were to then just take that one layer higher, right? then that means that the pancreas then has to start pumping out more insulin because the glucose is not being removed out of the bloodstream. It's not going into the cells. It's just staying in the bloodstream, which then feeds back onto the, to the pancreas because the pancreas uh, senses the amount of glucose that's available. And then it starts to pump out more insulin. And you just have this repetitive cycle as you have to have more and more insulin that binds to the insulin receptors to of slowly overcome this J and K signaling onto IRS because as IRS binds, um, then you're getting more and more of this inhibition and it just perpetually uh, happens over time. So that's, that's the, I'm sure there are other mechanisms as well that I'm not aware, but those are kind of the big two or three that, uh, that I was able to discover through reading in the literature. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that that's a particular uh, palmitate that will in in increase the ceramides um, inside the cell. Uh, it reminds me of some of the research, the seminal research by Gerald Schulman, looking at uh, diacylglycerol, doing something similar, um, feeding back and um, phosphorylating on the uh, serine threonine to dampen down that insulin signaling um, as it builds up in the cell. Um, and so these kind of fatty um fatty substances ceramides and diacylglycerol um i guess the thing which interests me is why are they building up and as you allude to that's could be excess like just too much um 
too much substrate inside the cell. And so there's also a kind of uh, homeostatic regulation because it's almost like if the cell is receiving too, mu too many nutrients or too much inside, then it has this mechanism for turning down insulin signaling and maybe uh, limiting the amount of resources that can come into, into the cell and therefore protecting itself against oxidative stress. That's a great point. Um, but I obviously it has these mechanisms that then become overrided because, um, you know, we are uh, addicted to eating or it's Christmas day and we have a, a feast or, or, or whatever, or even other effects. I mean, we focus a lot on, on uh, diets, but of course, one of the um, key uh, reasons why fatty acids may be increased in the bloodstream uh, uh, stress, adrenaline, liberating fatty acids, um, obesity. Um, this is where these things become uh, self-perpetuating and um, difficult to, to to deal with. So um, yeah, it's interesting uh, how there's that difference between between fats, and it'll be really interesting to see where that research goes and um, uh, fleshing it out a little bit as exactly why that happens. So. How does that research inform your daily choices around nutrition and, and what you're eating? Yeah, that's another great question. I uh, released a video uh, I, maybe nine months ago, a year ago, something like that. And the, the, the thumbnail said, I am a hypocrite. And the, the reason why I released that is because I, I wanted to let people know that just because I do all this research and whatnot does not mean that I follow all of the most optimal advice and whatnot. <clears throat> For example, do I eat saturated fat? Absolutely I do because it tastes fantastic. Uh, so I, I don't eat a ton of it and I do try to be more cognizant in general of my consumption of saturated fat, but do I still consume it? Absolutely. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny uh, myself, uh, you know, really good food just because I know of the molecular mechanisms or I know of the, the effects that might happen. Cause in the totality of my life, I think to myself, well, you know, I, I have this life. I'd like to, I'd like to enjoy it. So my philosophy in general is just do 80% of the good stuff and allow yourself the 20% guilt-free. So, um, what I do is yes, I focus on more monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. I still eat a little bit of saturated fat, no problem with that whatsoever. And I, I get my blood markers taken every year, uh, sometimes twice a year, and everything always looks absolutely fine. Um, the big thing for me is to create some sort of metabolic sink, which is an area that I still need to release a lot more content on. But um, muscle growth is unbelievably important and the process of muscle growth. So just exercising um, in such a way that you're pushing your body uh, to be in this stress environment to, to accrue this tissue, to accrue this uh, mus musculature, which then essentially draws on the fatty acids, draws on the blood sugars, draws on all that stuff, and it protects you. I mean, to have an elevated uh, need for energy does protect you. So that's, I think that's my number one thing. I exercise and I make sure that I'm pushing myself to the point where I'm constantly progressively overloading. So that's number one in terms of a habit. And the second thing in terms of nutrition is this 80-20 rule where I eat 80% of the stuff that, you know, as I'm discovering things, um, I 
try to stick to those things, you know, again, the monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. I do eat carbohydrates. I, I, I you know, I, I realize that some people are love to stick to a ketogenic diet or a low carb carbohydrate diet perfectly fine. You know, there's no problem with that whatsoever. But um, for me, I like to consume carbohydrates. So I eat a, a good amount. Um, and then I try to keep my protein elevated, uh, but not like astronomically high. I uh, typically aim for, you know, it depends on which kind of quote unquote season of my body changes that I'm trying to make. So I'll have a, a quote unquote season where I'm trying to build and grow more muscle. in which case I'll typically actually lower my protein intake. I realize that sounds a little counterintuitive, but I, I just try to maintain a level of protein intake that is uh, scientifically proven to maximize my gains without uh, consuming, over consuming protein, because then I start to have that satiety effect, which uh, I'm really trying to avoid if I'm trying to uh, add weight. And then if I'm trying to lose weight, which I currently am now, I increase my protein intake. And that that alone, just that increase in protein intake to I consume about one gram per pound um, of weight. Uh, from from that point on, you're already starting to cut into the carbohydrates. You're already starting to cut into the fat. So that naturally starts to reduce them um, in general. But then, of course, I reduce my energy intake overall. And then I take that away from the carbohydrates. I take that away from the fats. So I think uh, exercise with the goal of gaining musculature. And it doesn't have to be specifically that. It can be exercise for cardiorespiratory fitness as well. <clears throat> which is extremely important. Um, the other thing that I do is to make sure that I'm not, that I have some sense of what I'm eating, just kind of peripherally, not, I don't have to be obsessed, you know, weighing everything or anything like that, which I used to be. But now I've, I've relaxed quite a bit on that. So just being cognizant of, you know, I, I'm approaching the, the ceiling of what I want to eat today. Um, so controlling my overall intake, regardless of the macronutrient distribution and three, just being kind of peripherally aware of the macronutrient distribution. Um, you know, just making sure I'm eating for me, carbohydrates, the adequate protein, protein being my number one that I try to focus on and then uh, whatever fats. And, you know, if, if I'm traveling, if I'm having a fun with friends, I, I will absolutely eat cheesecake. I'll absolutely eat the, the burgers or whatever it might be and just, just have a fun time because it's not going to be something I'm going to be consuming every day. It's just going to be something that I consume every once in a while. I know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with David Sinclair. Um, I, I think at one point he's a Harvard researcher for anybody listening. Uh, he, he talks about longevity, he does a lot of research on longevity. I think at one point he said like he, he doesn't eat anything. Is it, is it David Sinclair? Is it, I'm getting it confused with someone else that I listened to on a podcast, but I think it was him, but I could be wrong. Um, he was talking about how he doesn't eat anything, anything good whatsoever. He doesn't eat cheesecake. He doesn't eat absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what kind of life is that to, to live? You know, I, and I think to myself, what's the psychological effect of that is, could that actually ultimately backfire to the point where you're so obsessed about the minutia that you stress yourself out? And then, you know, if we go back to our cortisol conversation that you start to 
ramp up this constant need to to micromanage everything around you when it comes to nutrition i think that that can lead to to some negative effects but again pure speculation on my part i don't know but um it's just a just a thought that i have sure i'm sure that it can lead to some negative effects yes i mean um the interesting thing is that it's all about context. Like you say, if you are exercising uh, regularly uh, as we've evolved to do, then the, the saturated fat issue may even become a non-issue because if you've increased your uh, muscle um, uh, muscle size, if you've increased your mitochondrial density, then like you say, you're gonna have this uh, a, a much larger sink where to put these uh, these nutrients. If on the other hand, you're leading a sedentary lifestyle, you're dealing with mitochondrial dysfunction, you're dealing with poor metabolic health, then uh, these choices may become much more important because um, you may be suffering more from these particular macronutrients or, uh, or maybe even micronutrient deficiencies, which stop those from, from working properly. Um, I remember um, some research looking at typically high-level athletes, and they were surprised to find that they had lipid droplets uh, or uh, collections of lipids in their cells, uh, which looked similar to diabetics. But then when they looked at it further, it was all about the flux of those lipid droplets, all about the fact that they could uh, generate them and remove them quickly. And it became a positive uh, adaptive feature rather than something like ceramides or diacylglycerol that's hanging around causing problems. I remember. Uh... So this idea... Okay. Yes, I, I, I remember that paper. That was, a, that was a really interesting one. It was also the location of the lipid droplets. So in obese individuals, the location of the lipid droplets was uh, near the sarcolemma, so near the cell membrane. And the, uh, the location for the triathletes and these heavily trained individuals was right next to mitochondria. So it was almost like a, like, oh, wow. a, yeah. like a, it was this huge reserve of fat that the mitochondria could then feed off of because they were in such close proximity. I thought that was such a cool discovery. I'm glad you brought that up. It's yes, yeah, an incredible adaptation. Um, yeah, for sure. And also this, the, um, the social aspect, uh, that's a really important point because, uh, when I was, when I was sicker, I used to be much more strict. I had done, um, keto for a while. I'd done many different diets for a while. And I believe they helped me in that moment because I was uh, limiting things that would have been far more detrimental mm. to my health. But as I've uh, improved in my health and relaxed a bit, and of course, I'm living in Italy now where, um, you know, there's no shortage of uh, very tasty carbohydrates. Every now and again, now going out with friends and having a pizza or, or whatever is um, is beneficial uh, to my health, especially if I, for example, have a little salad beforehand, a little apple cider vinegar. Um, I'm perhaps I've been exercising earlier in the day, so I've got a bit of a um, uh, um, yes, a deficit, an energy deficit going on, um, and so that's really beneficial to share time with friends and to socialize, and that's. Uh, one of the key things that comes up from, for example, the blue zone studies. Um, there's a blue zone not far from here in Sardinia where um, the, the guy is stopping at, uh, for example, yes, these people often stop at 11 or 12 in the morning and have a snack of uh, a piece of uh, pecorino cheese and some red wine. And But what they um, are doing is they're having that together with other people and in the context of a very busy day. I mean, even up until their 80s or 90s, these uh, many of these um, people are still... 
Uh, the men are out at six in the morning herding the sheep. They've already walked more than probably I walk in a <laughs> in a whole day, just in a few hours of the early morning. Um, they're in an un uncontaminated environment. They are sitting down with people, relaxing, eating with people. And so um, all of these aspects we can't uh, forget about when we're thinking about uh, reading studies with um, particular macronutrients. And um, um, I don't know how you would go about picking that, about, picking that apart in research, uh, but I'm sure we'll get closer to that as we, as we, um, as we move forwards. Yeah, so um, I'm just uh, aware of the time. You've been very generous with your time uh, so far, Nick. Um, um, so just in closing, um, what do you think your, your next uh, few months or even years of research is going to be focusing on in the lab? Uh, in the lab? <clears throat> in the lab, probably nothing else. Uh, I think my calling in general is, has been uh, in teaching, uh, teaching professorships. So I've, I've been doing uh, some, some work as a teaching professor as well as at a different university. So I'm going to be enjoying that mainly because I enjoy reading and analyzing research a lot more than actually performing research. Not that performing research is, is not uh, enjoyable. It is, but um, it's, it's takes a lot of time and I just find myself fascinated by reading research and actually analyzing it far more. I, I think I can gather information for myself and to help others uh, in a teaching format at a far, far greater degree than, I mean, multiple magnitudes uh, if I just do away with research. So for me, I think after my dissertation, I'm probably going to be just about done. Um, research-wise, at least in any sort of major capacity. But in terms of what I'm reading, uh, I am currently have a number of different investigations open. One of them is, which may be of interest to, to you and your audience, um, would be to look at LDL particle size. So I've been uh, reading, I think I have about 10 studies open at the moment where I'm trying to distinguish the harmful effects of small LDL versus large LDL sizes um, and the oxidation process. So I'm, I'm in the midst of, of learning about that. Um, and I have some content that's going to be, I'm doing some reading on uh, Tadalafil, which is a Cialis and the effects that it has on testosterone. I'm also looking at collagen supplementation. So I've got, I think, 12 studies open and a meta-analysis on collagen supplementation. If it actually helps our skin, does it help reverse some of the, the skin aging? Um, and a few others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but there's, uh, there's going to be quite a lot that's going to come out in the next uh, several months. Great, great. Okay, yes, I look forward to that. I enjoy your uh, your summaries. Uh, they're very, very useful. And I'm sure that's, uh, I can see why you put more focus on the teaching aspect and bringing that information and summarizing uh, in, um, in a successful way. So where can people find more about you? There's obviously your YouTube channel. Do you want to point people to, to that or to your website or where, where can people find out more? Yeah, I, honestly, whatever is most convenient. If you just type in physionics, a P-H-Y-S-I-O, physio, and then N-I-C is just uh, my abbreviation for my name. And I just stuck them together. So physionic. Um, if, yeah, you can, whatever, if you use Instagram, you can add me on Instagram. If you use YouTube, you can follow me on YouTube, whatever, whatever floats your boat. 
Sure. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time. This has been really interesting. Really great to have you on. And uh, good luck with everything. Good luck with your future research. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I think this uh, podcast is such a great idea, um, especially the, the focus that you have for it. So I'm really excited to, to hear the, the future episodes as well. And thanks for having me on. It was a real honor. Great. Thank you. Yes, we'll be in touch in the future. <laughs> thanks, Nick. Thank you. So that's about it for today for the episode. Um, if you found that interesting, head on over to Nick's website, physionic.org. Um, and you can also sign up to Insulin360 to receive regular updates and more interviews like this. Thanks and see you next time.